Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. The account that is before us is commonly called the Transfiguration. And if you will recall with me the last time that we studied Mark, we considered Christ's call to discipleship and really what that involved. And, and Jesus in there in uh, Mark chapter 8 spoke of his death and spoke of what it meant to, to follow him. He talked about um, laying aside ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. This call that, that he issued is really to all of us, to all believers. It was a call to abandon ourselves and our desires. It was a call to identify with Christ in his suffering and in his cross-bearing. It was a call to set aside not just something or some things, but to set aside ourselves, our own destiny, our, even our very lives for the sake of the gospel. And it's in light of this calling that, that Christ allows his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, to catch a glimpse of his glory, to see him in a way that others did not and could not. Peter, as we know in, in chapter 8, we, we talked about the pivotal nature of that chapter and how Peter confessed that, that Jesus is the Christ. And we saw that as he, in a sense, planted his flag there to say, to say, you are the Christ. And yet he then in just a few verses responded in disbelief and even anger at the thought of Christ being crucified and dying. Jesus, of course, rebuked him for that because he was speaking in words that, that were the words of the enemy against Christ in saying that in, in, in uh, Peter was, in a sense, seeking to correct Christ and saying what he came to do. But now Christ allows Peter, along with James and John, to see him in a way that they never had. They were to, in this passage, to catch a glimpse of his glory and to see him in a way that, that we can look forward to see him at his return. And just as the disciples needed to be taught and strengthened... In light of Christ's teaching about discipleship, so we too need instruction and encouragement in our walk with Christ. We too need a glimpse of glory. So let us read this passage, but before we do, let us pray and ask God's mercy and blessing upon the preaching of his word. Lord God, we come before you humbled, knowing that we are so much in need of your grace and your mercy. Lord, we pray that your word would be would be quick and powerful in our lives and in our hearts, and may it go forth with power. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Mark 9, beginning with verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word this evening. Anytime we are faced with challenges, and as we heard prayer requests given tonight, we certainly recognize the challenges that we as Christians face in this life. And when we face those challenges, we need encouragement. We need help along the way. I had the privilege this week of of visiting Anita Harwin. And even though her arms were bandaged and she had just undergone skin grafts, Uh, A couple days before, she had a great attitude and she was thinking of ways that in which she could praise the Lord, even in her circumstances, even in her trials. And when I commented on her positive outlook, she said that she knew that the saints of God were praying for her. She she knew that that the prayers of God's people were bolstering her and helping her and helping her keep a positive outlook on that. And if you know her, you know she's a very bubbly person anyway, but it was a blessing to hear that. She was able to bear the cross that she had been given through God's grace to her and through the prayers of God's people. And Jesus knew that his disciples needed instruction. We saw that because of Peter's lack of understanding and and not having a clear picture of who Christ exactly was and, and what his mission was. They needed instruction, but they also needed their faith to be built up. And so he allows his inner circle, inner circle of Peter, James, and John to see him and experience his glory in a way never seen before. We want to look at this text under four headings tonight. First of all, Christ's appearance, the guest that we see. Thirdly, the evidence from the Father. And lastly, the command to silence. But before we jump into that, I want us to look at this first verse. If you'll notice, and and I know a lot of you have an ESV Bible, and the way the headings are are, um, positioned in there leads you to believe that verse 1 of chapter 9 really belongs with the passage before. And a lot of commentators like to treat it along with the passage from chapter 8. However, it's, it's genuinely, and I think accurately we could say, it's a, it's a transition verse between Christ's call of discipleship and the account of the transfiguration that we deal with tonight. It's really a bridge, and so I've chosen to deal with it here. Remember, Jesus, as we said, has just been talking about his own death and how that those that follow him must take up their cross and follow him. They must hold their own life loosely, in a sense, with an open hand as they follow Christ. And they are never to be ashamed of Christ. If they are, Jesus says that I will be ashamed of you on the day when I return in my glory. And then he promises here in verse 1 that there will be some there with him at that time who will not die before they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power, Scripture says. 
So what is he saying? Is he saying these disciples are going to be, you know, going to live for 2,000 years? Are they going to be, are they somewhere hid away now? Of course not. No, he's, what he's saying here is there's, there's, he's telling them about what they're going to see. He's, he's got a veiled reference here to this transfiguration account that we have just read about. He's saying that a few of his disciples are going to catch a glimpse of his glory in a way that no other men in their generation will. He is forecasting what we've read in our text tonight. That the kingdom of God, which has brought salvation to you and to me, and comes with this great cost of discipleship, discipleship, yet this is the kingdom of Christ's glory as well. There is a great cost to it, but there's great glory associated with our Christ. And so he's, he's giving them a glimpse of that that will be ushered in by the return of Christ. So what is it that we see in this text? Mark gives us in his typical fast-moving way, he gives us the account of things that happen. Just boom, 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 he goes through it. First, he talks about Christ's appearance. Jesus' appearance was changed radically in this moment. It says he was transfigured. And that's a, that's a term that we don't use very often. The Greek is, is, sounds very much like the English word for metamorphosis. And it is the, 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 the root from which we get the word metamorphosis. And what we think about when you think about metamorphosis, I imagine most of you think about an insect that goes through that. A fuzzy caterpillar that goes into a cocoon and emerges as a beautiful butterfly. There is a radical change that takes place, a metamorphosis. And so, so Mark is using that word to help us understand that something radically different happened with Jesus Christ. It says that his, his, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. That's Mark's way of saying, it's beyond anything I can describe. It makes you think about what John saw in the book of Revelation. It just, it's almost like it defies description. And Mark is saying here that something happened with Jesus' face and his clothing. Mark focuses on his clothing. Matthew and Luke focus upon his face and the radical change and the brightness of the glory that was shown to them. It reminds us of the glory that Moses saw on Mount Sinai. What happened there? Well, there were all kinds of manifestations of the glory of God there. There was smoke, there was fire, there was, there was um, an earthquake, there was darkness, all of these things. And when Moses came down, and it was the second time after he came down with the second set of tables, his face was glowing. And scripture tells us in Exodus uh, 34 that Moses didn't even know it. He had been in God's presence and he was glowing from the presence of God. So much so that he had to veil his face in front of God's people. So he was reflecting the glory of God in a, in a way that was, that was amazing to the people. But whereas Moses reflected the glory that came from God, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Moses' glory and it, the radiance that came from his, him was a reflection of the radiance of, of, of Yahweh. But Jesus, the radiance that came from him, came from within because he is very God. That's the radiance that the disciples saw. 
And it was, it was striking. But that wasn't all. There were these guests that appeared with Jesus at that moment. Suddenly two men of Old Testament renown were standing there with them. They were in the presence of Moses and Elijah. The Gospel of Luke tells us that this occurred while Jesus was praying. Obviously, this was no ordinary prayer meeting to have Moses and Elijah in person standing there talking with Jesus. These men who represent really the law and the prophets. We, you think about how Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, meaning all of the Old Testament. So it, it seems reasonable that these men were a representation of the Old Covenant, of everything up to that point. Here's Moses. Here's Elijah talking with Jesus on the mountain. These men, of course, were no strangers to mountaintop experiences. They knew the glory of God. We've already talked about Moses on Sinai. But remember, Elijah had mountaintop experiences too. He saw the prophets of Baal defeated when God appeared and the glory of God came down and consumed the sacrifice and the dust and the water and everything there. And the people bowed and worshipped and said, The Lord, He is God. Elijah was no stranger to mountaintop experiences and the glory of God. And these men had been called back from the very presence of God to be witnesses of Christ's divine kingship to the disciples and to converse with Jesus. We're not told what the conversation was like, but can you imagine being there that day to hear what Jesus is saying to Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration? Perhaps they encouraged Jesus in the work that was before him. But we don't know exactly what the conversation was. Perhaps Mark could have recorded it if Peter would have been listening instead of speaking. Peter instantly started talking. Often when, when, when people experience something spectacular, we say they're, they're dumbfounded. They're speechless in the moment. There's, there's no words to describe it. But not Peter. He just starts talking when there's no words to describe it. He just starts filling the air with words, it seems like. But Peter, I mean, when you think about it, he, he didn't know what to say. Mark tells us that's, that's why he said what he did, because he didn't know what else to say. And he thought, okay, let's build three tents here for you, Jesus, and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And, but you think about it, and you think, okay, what, what could be better than to, than to prolong this moment? Where, where here, is, here are two witnesses. Scripture tells us that things are confirmed in the mouth of two witnesses. Here are two Old Testament witnesses confirming who Jesus is. And Peter's like, ah, can we just hit pause right here? Can we just bask in this moment for a little bit? But it, we don't read that Jesus even responds to him because we see that the, the narrative continues with the further testimony of who Jesus is and his divine glory. Verse 7 tells us that it goes on. It was next we see a cloud that overshadows them. And a voice came out of the cloud, verse 7 says, and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Again, we see glimpses from the Old Testament of the glory of God, the presence of God, the radiance of God, and how God manifested himself to his people. This cloud was a revelation of the glory of God. 
We saw the cloud again at Sinai. We keep thinking back to Sinai, where, which was really the, the, the quintessential appearance of God in, in the giving of the law. And all through the Old Testament, people looked to Sinai to say that's where God appeared. And that's where God moved in a mighty way in giving us what we needed to be the people of God in giving the law to them. So we see the cloud there at Sinai, and we also see the cloud that continued with them as they journeyed through the wilderness. It gave guidance to the people. And then as though these evidences in the blazing white clothing and the the radiant face of Christ, Moses and Elijah, these heavenly guests that were there testifying and conversing with, testifying to Christ and conversing with Jesus... And the cloud of glory, as if those things weren't enough, we hear the voice of God himself speaking to these disciples. And God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's the same voice that was heard when John baptized Jesus in the Jordan. Only there the the words were addressed to Christ where he says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It was that God the Father was speaking to Christ at the inauguration of his ministry. Remember, there from Mark chapter 1. And here the words are addressed to the disciples, saying, this is my beloved son. Remember, Peter and James and John, this is my beloved son. He is the son of God. He is very God of very God. Listen to him. He's the one you have to heed. And so this was an affirmation to the disciples that this Messiah that Peter confessed in Mark 8 was indeed the Son of God. He was no earthly ruler as as so many wanted in that day. He wasn't a political figure. He was not just another prophet or lawgiver. He was the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And then God drove the point home. Because when the, crowd, when the cloud disappeared, the disciples were left alone with Christ. And I thought about this moment, and I thought about how one might dramatize this in a play or something. And hear how, how all of these things, all of these incredible things take pl- place in, in, in what appears to be just a few moments of time. And then all that's left is Christ. Here is God's glory revealed and shadowed in so many ways from the Old Testament. And all of those things fade into the background, into the darkness. And Jesus is front and center with the light shining upon him. And saints of God, everything else in our lives should fade into the background when our eyes are on Jesus Christ. Jesus must fill our horizon. He must be our all in all. Finally, we see that Jesus issues a command to silence. As they descended the mountain, Jesus charged them not to tell anyone what they had seen until he had risen from the dead. And and they began to discuss what this rising from the dead means. What's he talking about? He's talking about dying. He's talking about rising again. These things were so unfamiliar still to the disciples. What did Jesus mean by that? We know, of course, it it makes sense that they would keep this to themselves because such an incredible event for them to see it and to publish it would certainly only anger the scribes and the Pharisees all the more. 
the disciples that day had had a rare privilege to see the glory of Christ in a way that, that no one had ever seen in, in their day or since, with the exception of perhaps John on the Isle of Patmos. And they saw something that, that we are still waiting to see when it comes, when we are waiting, as we wait to see Christ appear in glory. Jesus told them not to tell, and we, we see how it would be detrimental to them. For the disciples to attest to the signs and wonders confirming Christ as the Son of God would have surely gotten him killed sooner than, than he was. What they had seen was incredible, obviously, and the world was not ready to hear it. It could have stirred up zealots that would rally around Christ as a political figure that he, to, help him, to seek him to bring in an earthly kingdom. And as one commentator pointed out, and I think it's helpful that when we see the glory of Christ in, this way, in, in any way, we should be silent. We should be as Job that said, I put my hand upon my mouth. When he recognized the glory of God, the glory of his creator. We should want to talk about our Savior and certainly not about ourselves. So I ask you, what do you want to share with others? When, in light of Christ and his glory, does that make you want to talk about yourself? I hope it doesn't. I hope it, I hope it makes you want to talk about Christ. Do you want to highlight your own credentials or do you want to highlight Christ? Oh, that we would be able to meditate upon the glory of Christ and look forward to that day that his glory would be revealed in his soon return. Finally, I, I, I want to comment briefly on these final verses where he talks about Elijah and how that the, the, the disciples said that Elijah must come before Christ. They were looking at a prophecy in Malachi that talked about um, Elijah coming and, and many scribes of that day thought that Elijah would physically come before the Messiah. And Jesus tells them that, that Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then he talks about his own suffering. And um, the, the suffering of... He's speaking of, of John the Baptist here. He tells... Matthew tells us plainly that the disciples understood him to be speaking of John the Baptist. And, and scripture does nothing to correct their understanding in our own eyes. So we can see that, that John the Baptist did come... ...to proclaim the way of the Lord, to prepare the way of the Lord... ...and began the work of restoration that Christ completed. So what are we to make of, of this seemingly strange sequence of events? The dazzling white clothing and the face of Christ... ...the, the appearance of Moses and Elijah... ...long dead heroes of the law and the prophets... ...the cloud and the voice of God coming from the cloud... Why did the disciples see Christ's glory in this way? Well, I think there's at least three things we could say in conclusion that reasons why they were to see it and things that we can learn from it as well. First of all, I think it's, it's obvious that this was to confirm his identity as the Son of God. God himself spoke, the disciples heard it, this is my Son, listen to him. We see the confirmation ...of Christ's identity as the Son of God. Secondly, I think it was to increase their faith... ...especially in light of, of the command and the call to discipleship... That, ...that seems so incredibly high of a cost... 
that, that Jesus was saying, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But yet, there's a promise of glory that's attached with that call to discipleship. And thirdly, it's to remind them that there is a greater reality than just this world. And that's where I think we need to to reflect upon as as we close this sermon, that, that, that we too live in the midst of two realities. There's the reality that we are so familiar with here, our own life, our own world, the, the work that we do, living in our, our homes, training our children, homeschooling our kids, dropping our kids off at soccer, going to work, all the things we do that take up so much of our time and energy. But there's also the world of that, that we caught a glimpse of here, the world where things really matter. In his book on, on contentment, uh, Richard Swenson talks about that, that we live in two worlds, the small world that we live in and then the one that is much larger, the world of God's reality that, that is over the world we live in, but yet beyond that as well. One is limited, one is unlimited. One is all around us, we see it. The other is harder to see, God's reality. But it's, it's in God's world where things really matter. And the thing of it is, the things in our small world feel very heavy to us. We talked this morning in, in um, the child training Sunday school class about how much time it takes to train your children. If you're going to discipline and instruct your children right, it takes time. And so often we want to just get the job done and get on with our day. When, when we need to slow down and take time to shepherd their hearts, as the, as the, the, the book says that we studied. But what we need to realize is when we do those things that we're called to as believers, that in that call to discipleship, it makes a difference in, in the real world, in the world of God's reality. Here down in, in our small, finite world, things are painful. A cancer diagnosis that comes on your 50th wedding anniversary. I can't imagine that. Yet, we got to recognize that there is a reality beyond this world of our own pain and our own struggle and our own heartache. And God is, is preparing for us a place with him in heaven where we can behold his glory forever. What a glorious thought that is. So I leave you with that. Reflect upon the glory of our risen Savior And the fact that one day we can bask in his glory for eternity. Let us pray.